Foundations. That's what we're on. Um, this is week four of our foundations. We're talking about the foundation of the church. Uh, if God's building something here, uh, then we need to make sure that there's a solid foundation under it so that it doesn't fall apart. You can build something really big and really fast, but if it doesn't have a solid foundation, then it has no strength and it will collapse eventually. So our foundational truths, our core truths of who we are as a church, what, what defines who we are, what, what is it that we believe to be foundational and core to being a church and to being this church, um, we need to define those so that what's being built here will not fall apart, but it will stand and it will have value in eternity. Uh, and that's the main thing. We don't want to build anything that just looks good temporarily. We want to be a part of building something that holds together in eternity and it has value forever and ever and ever. Not just makes a cool brand in 2019. Um, so... Number one, we talked about revelation, that God has revealed himself in the Bible. That is the first truth that we claim to. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful, right? God spoke through his prophets and apostles, and, and, and he has revealed himself in the Bible, not only revealed himself, but preserved that so that we can know who he is, who we are, and what he's doing in this world. So we start in the scriptures as our foundation of truth. Um, <clears throat> number two, we talked about, if anybody knows, while I'm, we talked about who God is. Who is God? What is God? Can we define him? And he has defined himself in the scriptures. Remember week one, we said that this is the truth of God's revelation of himself. So based upon week one, we go back into the scriptures for week two to define who God is. We don't go in our feelings. We don't go in our emotions. We don't go simply by feeling our way through life to say, I believe this is what God is. We go and say, who has he declared himself to be? So that's where we went for week two. Week three was last week and we talked about sin, Jesus, and salvation. That's a huge topic. I noticed we're not on the podcast yet with that one. It's coming? Okay. Um, so if you weren't here last week, I strongly urge you to go back and to re-listen to that one um, about sin, Jesus, and salvation because that um, is one of the core of the core, right? If we don't get that one, then we don't know who we are and we don't know where to go from there. Um, so significant conversation last week in that conversation that we're having right now. So this week, foundation... Number four, uh, life after death. Life after death. Um, and based upon that, I'm going to tell you an illustration uh, about getting married. Not because that's death, but because it's relevant to the scripture that I'm about to read. Don't misread any conversations about marriage too quickly. Um, so... Uh, actually sitting uh, at a dinner table with Mark and Whitney and some other neighbors the other night, uh, we got to talking and they had never heard about Shelly and I getting engaged, which made me realize I haven't shared this story very often. If you've been with me for the last eight years, you've probably heard it, but if you've been with us for the last eight months, you haven't heard this. So uh, Shelly and I have been dating for two plus years and I wanted to marry her 
And the way um, I knew this was going to go is I had to go through her dad. I had to go through her dad to get permission to be engaged to Shelly and take her as my wife. Uh, turns out she was a little younger than I thought she was. I mean, I knew how old she was, but 20 is significantly young when you're talking about getting married and you're in your like, second year of college. But at that point, we didn't care because we just wanted to be married. Okay? Um, but her dad cared. That's the moral of that story. Uh, as a father, 20 is pretty young to give away your daughter. Um, so I went to her dad, and I don't remember what I said, but ultimately I said I would like permission to propose to your daughter. I want to marry your daughter. And um, I believe, word for word, the response I got was, let me think about it. I believe that was the response I got. So he thought about it. And then we got back together, maybe a week later, I don't remember the timeline, but we got back together and he said, here's the deal. Um, <clears throat> If you want my blessing to marry my daughter, then I'm going to request one thing of you. You're going to spend 30 days apart from one another. I'm going to request that you don't see each other, you don't talk to each other, and I'm going to give you some books to read to spur some thinking um, in your season apart. So in that 30 days, if you come back together and you believe that it is 100% God's will that you guys would be together and get married, then you have my blessing. And he wasn't joking. 30 days... Uh, apart from each other. We didn't see each other. We didn't talk to each other. Uh, I think the only communication that we had within 30 days was maybe one or two letters that uh, were written and got handed off to each other. So for a couple that's been together for two years, day after day after day, and we hadn't gone a day without talking, going 30 days was a pretty significant request. But we did it. Um, and... I, I try to go back because Shelly always makes fun of me because she had secondhand knowledge. All her friends would say, Josh is pathetic, like in this 30 days. And, and I try to go back and I try to remember what I was actually like because when she talks about me during this 30 days, I sound pretty sad. Um, they're like, he's moping. He's hanging around us all the time. He doesn't leave. He doesn't have anywhere to go. He doesn't know what to do. You know, so during this 30 days, uh, I had a, a wide range of emotions, and I can remember the guys I was working with and the conversations we were having. I can remember the weekends at um, I-30 Speedway, of all places, just because I had to be with somebody, and that's where they were going. Um, never been there before, never been after, but during that 30 days, I found myself there frequently. Um, there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of worry, there was a lot of doubt, um, I mean, it's interesting you spend two years with somebody and then you spend 30 days apart and you begin to wonder if they're going to love you when you get back. You begin to wonder, I wonder what she feels like now that she's been apart from me. Maybe she doesn't feel as strong. Maybe she doesn't want to marry me now. Um, maybe she does. Maybe it's increased because mine's increased, but I wonder if hers has increased or decreased. And there's a lot of fear and worry, self-doubt, a lot of things that come through during that time. Um, but I do remember our reunion. I think I filled her room full of flowers. I don't remember how many dozen flowers I bought, but I bought a lot of flowers. And your entire room was full of flowers. We had a reunion, a date night, um, and all those good things. And it was a pretty special reunion that we had as we got back together 
confirmed our engagement nine months later. I think we got a picture. Did you get that picture loaded? Nine months later, this is us in my prime. Man, I was good looking. I mean, man, she was a beautiful bride. That's what I was supposed to say. Right now. Uh, so we made it through. We got to the wedding. Um, but the key is, is had, we not engage, had we not endured or survived the season of separation, we would have not had the Father's blessing. Without the season apart, without spending that time separated from one another, I would have never had her Father's blessing to marry my wife. Um, and I want us to look at a passage that kind of taps into this in John chapter 14. I want to make a connection for you that maybe you have seen, maybe you haven't seen, but in light of our story, hopefully it'll help explain it a little better. John 14, we have Jesus speaking. And he says this, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would not have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that you may be where I am also. Let me read that for you one more time. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would not have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that you may be where I am also. All right. Y'all got to let me get rid of my peppermint. So the question is, what's Jesus talking about? Right? And I want to make sense out of that, hopefully, uh, over the next few moments. What the heck is Jesus talking about? And what he's doing is he's creating this illustration. Um, it's not something we can typically call one of our parables, but it is, in a sense, a parable. That what Jesus is describing is a very common thing for the first century Jew who was listening. He was, he was using something that was extremely well known to them to communicate something that they, a heavenly reality that they didn't yet understand. And Jesus, what is he talking about? He's, he's talking about a first century wedding. First century Jewish wedding traditions is what he's talking about. Uh, he says the groom leaves his fiance. The groom leaves his fiance and he goes to his parents' house to add on, to create a space for him and his bride, where he's going to return to his fiance once he's done adding on to the parents' house, and then he will go get, marry his fiance, and then him and his new bride will go to their new home, their new addition, added on to the family's property. And then he will begin his family in his father's house. So what he's doing here is Jesus is the groom. He's equating himself to the groom. He's equating the church to the bride. And 
the Father's house is life after death. So Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and the Father's house is life after death. And he's telling this story. The groom, Jesus, is going to leave. You're going to spend a season, a time, separated from me. And that time where we are separated, I'm preparing an eternal home for you. I'm going to come back. We're going to have a wedding feast, a party, a celebration. And then when I gather you as my bride and the, the, the marriage is complete, then we will go and spend eternity together in the Father's house. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and just as I and Shelley spent a season apart prior to our wedding, the church is currently separated from her groom and we await his return in our wedding day. So right now, though Jesus is not with us physically in the flesh, we know that he is with us in spirit, and then we know that he has not left us forever because he has simply left in this season of preparation. He will return and gather us to himself. And we'll never be apart from them. Just as Shelly and I received the, her father's blessing, we never have to be separate again. And we will have our heavenly father's blessing and Jesus will return and we'll never be separated from him again. Right? We will dwell in his presence eternally. This is life after death. So let me ask you a question. Imagine that you are the bride in Jesus' illustration. Try to set apart the church. Try to set apart that. Just talk about the story that Jesus was painting. That there's a bride and there's a groom. And the groom leaves you. You're the bride. The groom has left. And, and there's a season of separation between you and your future groom. And the interesting thing is you don't know when he's going to return. But the bride would gather with her wedding party. Her, uh, her girlfriends, and they would, they would spend that time together in waiting, and they were anxiously anticipating the groom to walk in at any moment, but they don't know when. There's not a wedding day, save the date, that doesn't exist. It's not like Saturday at four o'clock, we're going to gather at the, at the church. No, it's just the wedding party's gathered, and they're together and a bunch of giddy girls just anxiously waiting for their groom to return. And they don't know when, but they're waiting with anticipation that any moment he could walk through that door and come get his bride. So imagine for a moment that you are the bride. How would you spend your days leading up to the groom's return? As you're waiting, how would you spend those days waiting for your groom's return? What would you do and maybe what would you not be doing? our do's and our not do's. 
What would you be doing in that time of waiting? And what would you not be doing? So there's a dreaming and imagining your future just in a constant nature and then that constant anticipation. Right? Just this internal energy that just has you aware and awake and thinking about it all hours of all days. Right? What else? What would you be doing? What would you not be doing? I want to look good. So you'd be preparing yourself? Okay, fixing your hair, right? Um, you you would be, yeah. You be you be putting on the proper bridal clothes so that you would be prepared for your groom when he came to receive you. The last thing you would want is for your groom to come in and you to be a complete wreck, not ready for him at all. So didn't you know I was coming? So you wouldn't be uh, wasting those days, um, not concerned with being prepared. I don't know how to say that properly. Uh, but you wouldn't want to be caught off guard. You, you wouldn't spend those days just, doesn't matter what I look like, doesn't matter how prepared I am, doesn't matter if I'm properly clothed, doesn't matter. You wouldn't spend those days wasting that time and that energy and, and just not caring. And so what else? If you're the bride, what would you be doing? What would you not be doing in that? Not, our not do's is flirting with other guys. Right? Last thing you want to do on your wedding day when your groom returns is him find you with another man. That's not going to go well. I just kind of got tired of waiting on you. <laughs> Took longer than I thought you would. And he was available. He was cute, right? Bad move for your wedding day. What else? Hmm? So there's an interesting thing. What I would do, pack. Pack my bags, right? But the flip side of that, if I'm packing my bags, why? Because I expect to be leaving that home. I don't expect to live in my parents' home because my groom is coming and he is preparing a new home. So the last thing I'm going to be doing is sprucing up my room. Right? If I'm packing my current bags, then I'm not spending all my time and my energy decorating my current room. I'm not remodeling the house I live in. I'm not 
Why? Because I, I know I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to put all my time and energy, all my resources on my current home. I'm going to be packing my stuff up. Because I don't expect to live here. I expect to live in my new home. Right? In our 30 days that we had before our engagement, um, try to remember what we do. I had Shelly's uh, graduation picture. So I would look at the pictures that I had of her over and over and over. You, just, you, you try not to forget what she looks like, right? So you're, you're spending that time where you're apart just constantly trying to, to spur your memory to, to be clear in understanding who she is. Remember what she looks like. I don't want to forget that. You remember when you haven't talked to somebody, you're like, oh, I don't even know if I remember what their voice sounds like. So I'm just repeating, trying to, to remember the sound of her voice, to remember the look of her face. And you spent so much energy just trying to, to keep that clarity of, of who she was. I remember that during those days. I, I remember reading and rereading Shelley's letters. And Shelly still, we have a box in our coffee table. We need to move that because that's embarrassing. But we have a box full of letters that we wrote to each other during the season. And you would read and reread these letters. And then you would do that imagining the sound of her voice and, and imagining the look on her face. And you read and reread these letters. So that you, you find hope because in that time you begin to doubt, you begin to worry, you begin to think, what if she's left me? What if she doesn't care anymore? What if, what if, what if, what if? But when I read her letters, it, 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 it gives me confidence. It reminds me of her thoughts towards me, right? So, and I remember I talked to her mom more than I've ever talked to her mom before or after, right? Let me speak to your mom so that I may have assurance What's your daughter thinking? What's your daughter saying? What's your daughter doing? Am I okay? You know, has she forgot about me? And, and I just go straight to the parents because I don't have access to, to the daughter. Um, and during that time, just hope like crazy that she doesn't give up on me. Right. I think... As we wait upon our groom, as we wait upon Jesus to return, I think it looks a lot like that 30 days. I think you read and you reread his letters. I think you, you constantly remind yourself of, of his thoughts towards you. You get a clear picture of his voice and his face. My sheep know my voice, he says. So I want to constantly put his voice in my head that I may not forget it. Constantly put his words in my mind that I would know his thoughts towards me. Constantly go straight to his father. If I don't have access to him in the flesh, then I want to constantly communicate with this father. Constantly know that he has not given up on me. That he is returning. That I am his bride. That he is not flaky. He is not quitting. But he is coming again. And I want to ready myself. I want to be dressed and prepared. I don't want to be caught cheating on him, wandering around in places and with people that, that aren't preparing me and equipping me to be ready for my groom. I think our season of waiting on our groom to return looks just like my 30 days of waiting on my bride to come to me. That's what it is. There's no when we think about life after death and eternity, there's no shortage of biblical content concerning life after death. It's all over the scriptures. 
Um, with hundreds of scriptures discussing life, the afterlife, um, here's one thing that we conclude before we move on. One thing that we can agree on, the grave is not the end. It's the beginning. You start with that. The grave is not the end. The scriptures talk so much about life after death. And you have to begin by just acknowledging before you move on. The grave is not the end. When I die, it is not over, but it has simply just begun. The grave is the beginning of things, not the end of things. Okay? The grave is not the end. It is only the beginning. Look at Revelation, the last book in the Bible. We're going to go to one of the last passages of the Bible. Revelation 21. It's the second to last chapter in all the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it is, as it says, it is a revelation that the Apostle John was given from Jesus to show him the end of times. When Jesus came and gave him visions and communicated to him a picture of the end of times and life after death. And so John, writing that revelation in the book of Revelation, we had a, oh Bessie, a lot of people like to say revelations. We had a 90-year-old Sunday school teacher, piano player, organ player at our, one of our churches one time. And she's like, it's not revelation. She was, that was like her soapbox. It's revelation not revelations. It's only one. It's only one. Sorry, I just remember old Bessie. 90 year old. She was adamant about that one too. Um, so Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8. Let's read that together and see what it is that Jesus showed to John that John wants to make sure we don't forget, make sure that we understand. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. The wedding imagery is one of the most regular images that God uses to communicate him returning and gathering his people. It's a constant image. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things has passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But... But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share 
will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this is a passage that gives us a lot of clarity and content for the end of days, for life after death, for what eternal life looks like. So here's, just imagine that this is taking place because I had, uh, I had post-it notes that I was going to give you and since I lost them, I can't actually do that. So imagine for a moment that I just gave you a post-it note and you took one of those pens, right? Uh, so in that, um, there was a day I used to, um, sorry, when we get into talking about um, the afterlife and life after death, people try to explain it in so many different ways. And actually, there's become so many different um, just non-truths floating around that people accept to be true. Like, oh, St. Peter's going to meet me at the gate, right? Not found in Scripture. <laughs> um, um, maybe she got her wings. Like people magically become angels when they die. Not, not found in Scripture. Um, your grandma is not an angel. Um, she's still your grandma. Um, but there is some things that we have clearly stated in Scripture, and I want us to, to look at one real quick, and it's found right here. The one thing you can clearly see everything sad is coming untrue. Everything's sad. There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. We can clearly see that in eternal life, everything sad is coming untrue, but there's a kicker to that. In the presence of God. It's due to the presence of God that He will dwell with men and we will dwell with Him. He'll be, we will be His people and He will be our God living directly among us and everything sad comes untrue. I, was at, I used to be a, a leader helping orchestrate a, a, a camp for teens during the summer. We did an activity uh, at one of our, one of our events um, and I gave them cards. We gave 500 people cards before camp started. And I said, write on that card what it is that causes sane or pain or sadness in your life. Write on that card what causes pain or sadness in your life. So right now, I invite you to imaginary. Write that on your post-it note. Man, that would have been good if I had had post-it notes. So write on your post-it note in your brain, what is it that causes pain or sadness in your life? So we gathered 500 cards, and, and on those cards it said everything from divorce, abuse, uh, bubblegum, because not everybody took it serious. Um, but we had stuff all over the map. 500 cards, what causes pain and sadness in your life? The depth of the pain became, that was in that room became very tangible as we went through that night and we had all 500 cards displayed on our stage in front of us. And, and then we went through the presentation that we were doing and we made the point that we were making 
But the depth of the pain that represented on those cards became evident when we concluded our night and there were dozens of students just wailing in pain, emotionally wrecked from what was displayed on those cards. Right? Um, and it was one of, if not the most profound night of my ministry experience when the depth of those pains just became so real. Um, the depth of pain in our world is, is extremely deep. Extremely deep. Um, so we ask you what, and I'm not asking you to say this out loud today, but to know what you wrote on your card. What, what's written on your post-it note? Right? If I try to display describe all the realities of heaven, I fall short. But I can describe one thing. I can't clearly tell you the imagery of the new heaven and new earth, but we can say that if your hope is in Jesus, your post-it note is clear. It will be cleared in the presence of God should you find your hope in Jesus. Whatever brings pain and sadness to you right now, our clear hope is that that will be cleared and that it will be no more in the presence of God for all eternity. That pain is temporary. That sadness is temporary. That situation is temporary. And, and it's going to be eliminated. It's going to be undone. The other side of life after death is a little bit less favorable. Right? Right? Um, what John calls here in Revelation 21, he calls the second death. The second death. Um, it's Jesus and, and the authors of the scriptures are consistent and clear when it comes to eternal punishment and the concept that we most commonly know as hell. They're very consistent, they're very clear, yet for understandable reasons, this is one of the most rejected biblical ideas that a lot of times we just don't want to accept that this is a reality. Um, and, and, and I can understand that, but when the scriptures are so consistent and so clear, then we have to take it serious. Um, so when it comes to eternal punishment, um, I found an article this week and it talked about one of the most common terms that Jesus used to speak of hell was um, a Jewish term called, and when Jesus used this word Gehenna, it's a name, it's a name of a place referring to the valley of Himon, south of Jerusalem. So Jesus, once again, using the name of a place um, where you got Jerusalem and then just to the south is the valley of Himon. He used that to, as an illustration of hell. So when he talked about life after death for those who reject him, he, he wanted to portray their reality as being present in the Valley of Himon. And here's why he did that. Gehenna is not necessarily to be thought of in terms of raging fire. This is a quote from the, the, the article. It's not to be thought of in terms of raging fire so much as a garbage dump where all the refuse of the city was taken to be burned. 
including the bodies of criminals and the derelicts. It is a place of waste and corruption. So when Jesus spoke of hell for eternity, he was speaking using this place that they knew very well. You took the bodies of criminals, you took the waste of the city, and it was burned, and it was a wasteland. Um, So he used this to illustrate the reality of hell. It's a place of waste and corruption. It's a great tragedy which the lost must endure. Uh, They therefore will be lost to contemplate their rejection of God and their eternal destiny apart from Him. So the Valley of Himon, very known to Jesus' audience, and He chose to use that to describe an eternal reality apart from the presence of God. The New Testament also describes hell and eternal punishment as outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey His gospel, and the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord's presence. This is how the scriptures describe the concept of hell, eternal punishment, eternal condemnation, the why and the what. You have rejected God, rejected His gospel, and left that condemnation on yourself to the wasteland apart from Him where all things are destroyed. Here in Revelation 21, John said, The cowards, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Anybody ever been a coward? Lost your courage? Anybody ever been without faith? Faithless? Anybody ever used the gift of sex outside of the context of marriage and how God's designed it? Anybody ever told something was not the truth? Condemnation in life after death doesn't necessarily, because you have done those things, if that was the judgment, that we're all condemned, right? If that was the judgment, then we're all out of luck. Condemnation in life after death is because you rejected the one and only Son of God who came to be condemned on your behalf. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us stand in judgment of the wrath of God. But Jesus came to be condemned for you so that you would not be condemned. Jesus came to take your place and your death so that he may give you his life and his righteousness. We are not judged on whether or not you have used sex immorally. We are not judged whether or not you have told lies that were not the truth. But Jesus says that he will be the judge when he returns. And if you trust in him, put your hope in him, you will not be condemned. But you're already condemned if you reject him, he says. So rejecting condemnation in life after death is because you reject the Son of God who has given up His life to prepare a place for you 
taking your condemnation upon himself, rejecting the resurrection of Jesus, which gives life after death, makes it possible. He has defeated death so that you may live eternally. As we choose to reject Jesus, here's, here's what happens. Choosing to reject Jesus eliminates the anticipation of our groom. Think about this, that he is not the Savior. He is not the way, the truth, and the life. He's not the Son of God, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. He's not coming back. When I declare those things to be my reality, I'm rejecting the idea of my groom and his return. And if I reject the idea of the groom and his return, I begin operating in this reality. I begin to do the things that I wouldn't do if my groom were coming back. I begin to waste my days without any consideration of preparing myself, cleansing myself, making myself ready for my, my groom. I begin to spend my days not concerned with being prepared. I begin to spend my days with flirting and, and getting close to those that are not him. And I begin to corrupt myself and I begin to enter into relationships with either people or other gods that, that can't save me. And I begin to spend my days just simply decorating my temporary home with no consideration of where I'm going or where I'm moving to. I had a friend post on Facebook this week. It was the, uh, maybe it's a phrase you've heard before, polishing the brass of the Titanic. Spend the rest of my life polishing the brass of the Titanic. It's going down. I'm going to spend all my days and all my time trying to make this place pretty when he's going he's gonna to tear it down and make a new one. This is not our home. But when I quit waiting on my groom, I begin living in this reality. And when I begin living on this reality, I am the coward, the faithless, the detestable, the murderer, the sexually immoral, the sorcerer, idolatry, and liar, and the share that I receive is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Not simply because I did bad things. We've all done bad things. But because I rejected the one who is coming. Therefore, I live in a different reality. So what's our we believe statement this morning? We believe every person has an eternal destination. We believe that. As a church, that's our stand of truth. We believe every person has an eternal destination. Those with faith in Jesus will be raised to eternal life in God's presence. And those who reject Jesus will be condemned to eternal punishment away from God. We believe every person has an eternal destination. Those who have faith in Jesus, raised to eternal life in God's presence, those who reject Jesus will be condemned to eternal punishment away from God. It's not our idea. It comes from what God's revealed to us. So I want to 
I want to get a response from you. I want us to think critically internally for a moment and then externally through reflecting. This will be fulfilled in the future. Right? Some of these things are not today, but they're tomorrow. They'll be, they're coming. We don't know when, but they're coming. They're delayed till later, but there's a lot of implications for today. Two things come to mind for me. Number one, according to our first truth, this, this reality sharpens my anticipation of his return keeping me from being distracted by shiny things. Right? That's what this truth does to me. It just keeps me anticipating Christ's return. And it, it stirs me to not be distracted by shiny things that don't matter, that won't last. And that's why I say we want to start a church. We want to be a part of something that goes into eternity. Something that won't be burned up. And this reality does that to me. The second thing this does for me personally creates an intense awareness concerning our role in this city. That I just feel like over the last couple of weeks this has been stirred even more for Shelly and I, but, but we live in a place and we're surrounded by people that are searching for hope and relief. Right? And, and we are placed in this city to help them conquer that they may receive eternal life. That is our presence in the city. That is our purpose in the city. We are here to proclaim good news. Right? And through that good news, they will become more than conquerors. Those are the two truths that this stirs me with. So I just want to hear from you and say, as we discuss these things, what comes to mind for you? This conversation town. Yeah. Have. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to judge what God has for you in this time. Is it's, it's, I'm wrestling with how I'm using my time and resources right now. There's, it causes me to reflect. I'm just repeating what you said. It, this is causing me to reflect on am I being wise with my time and resources concerning my home and things like that, or am I polishing the brass of the Titanic? And that's a great question to ask yourself. And then I think what you just said, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when Christ returned, even if it was tomorrow, I think seeing him face to face would reveal the motive of my heart that I'm wrestling against today. Like, would his face in front of me, like, in his return tomorrow, would I, would I have the sense of remorse and regret with how I'm using my time and my resources? Or would, or would I be joyful to see him walk into my presence in my home? And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know. Say, I agree with every bit of that. First thing you said this morning was, "What do you got going Wednesday?" You know, husband thing. Mm-hmm. When you, when you and me got planned to work, I'm a worker. You know that. Yeah. That's one thing that gives me anxiety is taking time off of work. We got a schedule and do stuff and everything. Mm-hmm. And what all's going on right now, you know, it's like, like, like you're saying, you, know, you don't really need to polish what's right here. So it kind of gets on to me, like, mm-hmm. all right, work with Josh. He's going to make me do this stuff. <laughs> church, you know, instead of working. I've already thought about it. I've already thought, I'm just going to leave Tony on the project, and I'm going to spend two hours here, and I'll be back, Tony. No, that's, that's you know, this hits home, honestly. It yeah. really does. So, you know, I, I have to make a point to do those kind of things. I think that's why I'm here in the But I think each one of us knows internally, says, Tony, is it going to take away from your family if you take two hours on Wednesday? Honestly, no. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, every one of us knows that, that. And some of you need to be set free from the guilt trip that says, you know, if I do take two hours on Wednesday, it's going to wreck my career. This is an important day. I have an important thing that I am responsible and accountable to. And you need to be set free from the fear or the guilt that here in Tony reflect, because Tony has a career that has flexibility. God's gifted you with a career that allows you to say, I'm going to stop for two hours. Some of us are accountable to something during that time slot, and you don't need to pick up a burden or a guilt or a shame in that. You need to be faithful with what you've been tasked to. But those of you that have the ability to stop, and God's calling you 
to invest in eternal things and stop for the temporary things for a moment, you need to walk in that. You know? But that's in no form or fashion. Like, here, why don't you carry this guilt trip, Tyler? Right? For things that you have no authority and no power over in that moment, for this one thing. So, but at the same time, if God's saying, Mike, sell your house and cut it in half and use the money to feed the poor and clothe the naked, then you do that. You know, you do that. It's like Tony and I were talking, we were sitting in the creek with our boys yesterday. Tony took me and my boys fishing yesterday and all day long, Justice is just oblivious. He just won't listen to sound instruction. He's, he's complaining and moaning because he's got this giant crankbait thing and he's just, I mean, it's just, I'm like, Justice, you're either going to catch nothing or you're going to catch the biggest fish in this pond. But then six hours into our fishing trip, he's moaning and complaining, I ain't got nothing, I want to catch a bass. I'm like, put a stinking cricket on your hook and you'll catch fish like everybody else. And he just says, no, I don't want a cricket. And he throws that stupid crankbait out there again. And he just keeps pressing into that. But the And then Tony, we're in the crawdad creek and, and the boys are over here in this one end of the creek. Tony grew up in this creek, he knows where the crawdads are. So the boys are over here turning over these rocks on this side. And Tony's like, hey, if y'all come over here, you're going to get more and bigger crawdads. <laughs> but, but, but Gunner and Brant are just like oblivious. They're like, no, we're, we're crawdad hunting here. And then Tony goes over there and he pulls up this rock and there's a lobster. <laughs> and he's like, I told you that if you listen to me, and you'd follow me over here, that yeah, you'll have to give up those things, but I'm over here to reveal greater things. And, and Tony's like, them boys are stupid. <laughs> well, were we that hard-headed? And I said, Tony, that's a, it's an illustration that God's given us about us and Him, that God's asked you to come over here and to receive better things. And Tony's like, yeah, and I'm over here just saying, well, I'm doing this thing, though. I'm doing this thing. And I'm like, yeah. That's what he's doing. Now, I will say that Justice hooked the biggest fish of the day on that stupid crankbait, but he was not equipped to reel it in, and it broke his line. He did catch a bass. So what else? What does this bring into mind for you? What's this conversation bring to mind for you? Hmm? Gratefulness stirred by the grace of God that do read idolaters, sexually immoral, and you read that list, you're like, that's me. Yet he's promised me a place in his home. He's prepared a place for me. Based
We've had a, a real clear understanding that God is positioning us as a church to, um, to take the gospel into corners of the city that nobody else has access to. I believe that with all my heart right now, that he is positioning us and preparing us to have influence and to carry the gospel of Christ and the hope that he brings to places that no other church in this city can touch. I believe that with everything I have. And I believe we're on the tip of that. And I believe that's going to continue to flesh out on an increasing basis over the next weeks, months, and years. And that's why he's called us here. Anything else brings to mind? interesting thing about the conviction that comes through the Holy Spirit, it's like the goal is not to make you feel bad. The goal is lead you to more joy and more hope. So it's like God's revealing that to you and now you're aware of it and you shift. And you get to enjoy the fullness of what he's showing you now. You know? And Jesus told other parables about these girls that were waiting on the groom. It's like there were some that let their lamp burn out. You know, they they got the lamps and they're trying to keep everything lit until the groom comes and then the groom comes and they're like, oh, the lamp's empty. I wasn't ready. I quit waiting. I got distracted. And he showed up. The other ones are ready and they're excited. Just revealing to you where are you there? Are you anticipating what he's bringing to them? Anything else?
do believe this is an incredible truth that's been revealed to us um, and that we get because of what we've seen and what we know to be true we get the opportunity to quit putting our hope and our trust in temporary relief and we get to place it upon Jesus which is going to bring eternal relief we don't have to hope in our house. We don't have to hope in these rituals. We don't have to hope in any of these things to relieve us of the sadness and the, the fear and the, the, what sin has caused in this world. But we're waiting upon our groom because he has dealt with all of that on the cross. He has defeated it in his resurrection and he is coming again. And we will be with him and all things will be made new again. Our hope is in him. Our hope is not in something else that is going to steal, kill, and destroy us. Our hope is in him. And he comes to bring life and life more abundant. So we're going to live here dreaming of that future, constant anticipation, preparing ourselves, packing our bags, being ready, loosening ourselves from this world so that we might be with him. And we also get to urge others to join the feast, to join the banquet. Urge others to point their attention towards the one whom our hope is in. Put your hope in Jesus. He's coming. This is, this is it. He's making all things new. I know you want relief. I know you're looking for peace and it's only found in Him. It's only found in Him. We get to urge others to be a part of that. We were at the hospital the other day visiting one of the guys that owns a barber shop in our downtown area. He was on a motorcycle and got hit by a car. Broke his hip, broke his pelvis, multiple places, fractured bones, internal bleeding. And I, mean, I, I called Tyler. It's like, man, I was praying for him when I found that out. And I just felt like God is active in this. And he's... It's like there's certain times that you pray and the Holy Spirit just comes over you in unique ways that doesn't happen other times. And when that's happened to me, then I've, I've looked around and recognized that God's moving things. He's doing things. His power is going to be made known in this situation. And every time I've had prayer like that, I've looked up and I've seen that. So I called Tyler. I was like, I'm praying for him. And this just unique presence of God is upon me. And I said, we've got to go visit him in the hospital. He probably doesn't even remember my name, but we're going to go visit him in the hospital. We did, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was like, before we went, I, was, I just felt like we need to leave something with him. I want to leave a reminder. I want to leave an encouragement with him. So I was looking around the house. What are we going to leave with him? And there wasn't anything, and I just started praying, God, what do you want us to leave with him? And then immediately God's Spirit brought to mind what Jesus said. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, but as I give. Don't let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. So we just went, told him what, visited with him, saw how he's doing. God's brought him through that initially he's got a long road back. But then we were able to speak that peace over him and his wife. Not knowing where they are spiritually, not knowing anything about them other than they have the shock. Um, and Tyler can testify or deny that their faces lit up as we spoke that reality over them and prayed over them and just
peace washed over them and joy. As we just point them back to this. Just point back to this. That's what we do. We just point back to this. We do it in our words and we do it in our actions. Just point back to that. I want us to spend a moment at our conclusion here praying for the lunch that we have on Wednesday, praying for the business owners, praying for our influence in the city, that we're going to have people in here on Wednesday all over the map, right? People that are all over the map when it comes to their worldview, their spiritual anticipation, their belief systems, just all over the map. And they're going to come and we're going to host them. We get to show them the love of the Father. And I just want to pray, first of all, that, that they will be met with the Spirit of God when they walk in here for a meeting. They walk in for a meeting, but they'll be met with the Spirit of God when they get here. Okay? And God will give us the right amount of influence in the right direction in this city. And after we pray for this, Van's going to lead us in just another verse and chorus to celebrate the amazing grace that we get to participate in. Not only do we get to be recipients of this grace, but we get to be conduits of this grace. That's an incredible, incredible thing. Tyler, I mean, Derek, will you pray for our lunch and for these leaders and these owners? Can you pray for us in that?